Good afternoon, good evening, good metal. My name's Coop and welcome to the Spoken Metal Show. This is an episode we've been waiting to do for a while, but kind of trying to figure out and get it sorted, and it seems really timely to do it now. It's with Ian Shaw, a booker, a promoter, and some, some of the things we cover about all the many facets of that kind of area of the scene. And we talk about live music, we talk about Chester Live Rooms and some of the challenges facing people within the industry, a crew and the like, and promoters and what have you. We also delve into what it's like to be a promoter, what it's like to be a booking agent, and what do these what do these people do, and how does it work, and how's that kind of world? We, I wanted to shine a little bit of a light on that because it's a very difficult part of the business and something that, um, once again, will suffer because of the lockdown and coronavirus and what have you. It's a really timely um, podcast to, to be doing, but also I think it, it, we talk a lot about music itself as well, and I think you're going to get a lot from this. This is uh, my sit down with Ian Shaw. Um, so, someone we've been we've been wanting to listen to, ladies and gentlemen, for quite some time, um, and even and now, particularly, it's really uh, poignant that we get um, Ian Shaw on the on, on the podcast. Welcome to the show, Ian. It's really nice to, to speak to you, mate. Indeed, mate. And you? How you doing? You keeping well? All right, boss. Like we were just saying before we come on, it's we're, we're in a world of streaming and video conferencing, aren't we? It's, yep. it's crackers. Um, it's a it's a new world. Yeah, that, that yeah. I don't know if I like it. I don't know. I, I always used to prefer to do interviews and stuff face to face. You get like yep. comedy and sarcasm better than than doing yeah, these. No, no. Like, but uh, I guess it's something we're gonna have to get used to, isn't it? I guess most business is gonna be done this way, you know. I, I mean, I prefer this to a phone call. I mean, I do a lot of um, business in the states and uh, in other yeah. other countries, and it's usually just on the phone. But like, ever since I've been like picking up your axe or anything else, it's been sort of doing you know Zoom meetings and actually seeing the guy face to face. And you know, actually, because I don't get to meet a lot of these people. You know, if I yeah. go over to America, I meet a few of them, or they come over here for festivals. But I generally just don't get to see any of them uh, a lot of the time. So it's nice yeah. to actually put a face to a name straight away. Yeah, it's it's weird. Like I was talking to someone a couple of days ago, really old tour manager from way back in the day, and 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 he, I was talking about Zoom conferencing and and, and kind of trying to set up tours and stuff using emails and and all that type of thing that we take for granted. And he was like, I used to do it over a phone, and and it'd be a time of day, it'd be like at three o'clock, I'll be in Arizona, so I've got to get to a payphone to ring Wigan or Swindon. And I was like, that it blows my mind that people used to go around the world yeah, on a phone like- call. You know, sending letters to each other and contracts via <laughs> post and riders via post and all that sort of stuff. I mean, I obviously I started this 15 years ago. I would now actually say 15 years. I've been saying that for about three years now. So I think we're on. <laughs> like, well, where is? I started in 2003. So whatever we are now, 17 years ago. Yeah, you've got your um, film age and you've got your normal age, like yeah, yeah, yeah your press <laughs> age, they call it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think, well, I mean, yeah. we've got we've got an enormous amount to cover. A lot of people. Um, raising questions and i've never spoke to a booker before and never spoke to promoters before we've had a couple of promoters on the show so we'll definitely get into that but i suppose the best way to deal with things is go right the way back to the first things you began hearing musically the first bands and the first sorts of movements you 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 listened to what would they have been okay so we're talking about sort of early to mid 90s i mean the first ever cassette I ever purchased was literally I was getting sent to London on a school trip, which was going to take, I don't know, I think it was like five hours yeah. on the coach from uh, mold. And, uh, you know, I was like, Oh, what am I going to do for five hours? So my parents went and bought me a Walkman. It was massive. It was the size of a fucking, I don't know. God knows what it was. It was beastly. And, uh, you know, the, the two cassettes I bought were Michael Jackson, bad and erasure. 
Okay. Um, and it, you know, that, that doesn't quite lead me to where I currently am, but I mean, that was my first sort of real experience of purchasing my own music, something for me to listen to on a, on a journey for yeah. several hours and, you know, listen to them on repeat, could sing, you know, all the lyrics back to me you know, constantly just listening to those. And then as I went into high school, it was more, you know, I was picking up things like, um, oh, do the Bartman Simpsons yes. um, and, and, you know, and crazy things like that. And, you know, <laughs> a lot of film soundtracks like, you know, mm. Teenage Mutant Hero Turtles mm. and you know, Vanilla Ice and, you know, then picking up on things like Nirvana and Pearl Jam, Pantera, Obituary uh alice in chains it's funny Soundgarden. that you mentioned soundtracks because certainly during the 90s and maybe like the the, the end of the 80s that was kind of the back door for for certain artists wasn't it like you know it certainly uh, was yeah you, you'd get metal artists that would be a one or two tracks they'd get on a soundtrack for maybe yep. a fight scene or whatever it may be so aggressive piece of music and that kind of backdoored a lot of sort of great music yeah no absolutely this, i mean i, I picked like up a game. lot of uh even, you know, back in sort of, I don't know, early 2000s when I was uh, DJing, you know, rock clubs and under 18 nights, you know, back in the road when a period where they were actually, you know, doing the soundtracks for a lot of things, whether it's Freddy versus Jason, whether it was Resident Evil, yeah. whether it was whatever, you know, you'd have Slipknot, you'd have, you know, computer games like Tony Hawk's on the PlayStation, you've got all the tracks on there, all the skate punk stuff and all the, yeah. you know, alt rock, new metal. So, you know, a lot of those soundtracks then in the 2000s was kind of like what gave a lot of bands their opportunity to actually get their music heard by a whole bunch of people that they wouldn't normally do. And the yeah, same yeah. thing happened in the, the 90s with, you know, all the films that were coming out. Yeah, there was like, uh, there was this real sort of prominence, especially during the, uh, the 90s of like, um, you had like uh, rap, going on the same soundtracks with metal and then you could see yeah, them kind of judgment day in. obviously judgment you know, day is a fantastic yeah. soundtrack like i mean yeah. spawn is one my favorite films yeah, of all time yeah. and the soundtrack for that was insane it was like crossing over metal artists with electronic artists so you had yeah. sneaker pimps with corn you'd have filter with uh honestly i can't remember who the tracks were now was but it was, it was, yeah like uh yeah i remember slayer playing with the teenage riot i think was on yes, that as well yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Like, i mean that was an amazing album. stuff you know yeah, and, it, yeah. and it was really kind of that was the the way so tony hawks as well comes up a lot when we do these shows a yeah. lot of people were, it was like from the playstation generation if you will always talk about tony hawks they're doing it again as well and, and, yeah, I did, and uh, you know obviously uh, trapped headstrong was on there yeah. and there's been massive petitions any new soundtracks because of their current political leanings uh, in the US. Uh, it, it's so, it's interesting know. as well because you say you have two two tapes that you listen to traveling on a coach uh, yeah. and for those younger listeners maybe out there these are tapes with like tape inside that you put in a machine you have to press <laughs> play and a Walkman is yeah. something that has batteries that only has a certain amount of life yeah. you can't recharge it there's no USB port to it but you would have had to listen to those songs over and over again those albums over Absolutely. and over again yeah, yeah. and absorb I mean, it. Yeah, and I think like Faith No More was one of my favourite artists. And I remember yeah. going into, I can't even remember what the record shop was in Mould. It was yeah. in um, St. David's, Dewey Sant Shopping Precinct, whatever. It was a cool little shop, tiny little thing. Yeah. I'd go in there and pick up my, you know, Guns N' Roses, I think Usual, Usual Illusion 1 and 2, and Faith No More, um, Angel Dust, and then, you know, going back from there and, and what have you. And, uh, I mean, it was kind of naughty, but like, I'd go and copy my friend's, um like whatever album it was and mm. i'd kind of go into that shop and i'd find the empty cassette case 
trying to steal the empty cassette case and take it home so I could put my copy version in the empty cassette case. <laughs> so you could have a wall, your wall of the tape had to look right, yeah. Yeah, I had, I had all the original cases, just the tape inside, it wasn't the real case. And I mean, that no was, one that saw was, that, it didn't matter, naughty. no one saw that. Yeah. <laughs> it was very, very naughty. But then you know, I picked up all like the, you know, the single CDs, I remember picking up uh, Pantera and Broken, uh, CD1 and CD2, and yeah. back then you'd have like, you know, CD1, uh, I'm Broken, Slaughtered it was, yeah. and like the first CD would have I'm Broken on it, uh, with a different picture on it, and maybe like two other tracks, and then CD2 yeah, like, I think you had a live track, I think it had, um, I can't remember what did the live track, like, it might have been Primal Concrete Sledge, it might have been live or something, I think it was, I think, yeah. man, I'm testing my memory there, but yeah, I think that was, I think, I think but that that's, was it. Yeah, like that was when singles were huge as well, you like, yeah, you know, man. They were a huge part. I think our our listening has has kind of changed. This comes up a lot where um, you go from a Walkman where you have like one album or one CD or one yeah. tape, and then you have like listening to on a a, a video game soundtrack. So you're constantly listening to it because you, you're playing the video game for like two three hours, and then yeah. there seems to be like a bit of a gulf then when the internet kind of becomes fully involved and streaming services become involved, where people's listening habits radically change. And they become uh, less so like people only give songs a couple of minutes and like, right, well, I don't like this entire artist because of that one song. And it's interesting yeah, I mean, to, to, to hear kind of as you move through listening. Uh, do you listen? Do you still, are you involved with for vinyl? Do you still listen to vinyl? And that's Yeah, no, I, I've got a, quite an extensive vinyl collection. I mean, yeah. I, I, I should have kept everything, but like literally when I was in high school, I went through the whole grunge phase yeah. and then I started getting into more extreme metal and that wasn't fast enough. And then I got into Gabba techno cause that was faster and more intense. <laughs> uh, and then I started listening to Stu Allen on key one Oh three. And I'd be sitting right. there listening to his one hour show and I'd be like pressing, you know, record. And then I'd be trying to stop it when he was starting to talk oh, and then yeah. pressing record again when he wasn't <laughs> talking. Um, and then, when I started getting into techno, I literally, I know, I put a big massive list together of all my CDs and my cassettes and vinyl at the time. I had a Danzig vinyl. I had, oh, I had all sorts of crazy vinyls, uh, you know, picture discs, etc. And I just went around the school and handed it out to all the rockers uh, in my school. I went, yeah, I've got all those. Do you want to buy them? And I started, I just literally sold all my collection then. Wow. Uh, and then, uh, you know, I got more into sort of techno, hard dance music up until about... Early twenties. Why? Why and the then, change then? Ian? Why? Why going from like sort of the rock and, and the metal and, and then going to that? Was it just because it just it spoke? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I just wanted I wanted faster, more intense music, yeah, and I yeah, felt yeah. like that's like you know Slayer was about as tense and obituary as hmm. it got. And yeah. like if you go and listen to how fast like speedcore and Gabba techno is, and it's like yeah. it's intense. Yeah. And like you know, I used to go to a lot of sort of raves back then, hmm. uh, and then I sort of slowed it down a bit and went more into sort of just acid techno music and used to go mm. clubbing and then i literally changed from that went into a bit when i started working for you know a council in an office and we'd all go out to like brannigan's in chester yeah. or we'd go to whatever yeah. the tivoli uh for you know a monday night pound a pint or whatever it was or the cross yeah. keys in buckley on a thursday um and you know you just you, you came more engrossed in sort of commercial music and then yeah. you know it was because like at that stage in it is the sort of mid to late 90s that was uh, there was a social aspect of it as well you know the, you, yeah. you listen to the music but it was always a, the soundtrack of going out as well yeah. it was very part of it and there isn't you know there isn't a metalhead out there certainly from the uk around that time that didn't have a portion of his brain that would listen to some of that stuff like because there was great stuff there was a crystal method and there was all these 
you know, really great stuff that was that was almost acceptable, you know, that you yep. could listen to as a metal. Because of soundtracks like Spawn and stuff, there was it was yeah, kind yeah. of almost okay to listen to some of that because it was aggressive in a different form, you know? Yeah, I was getting massive into sort of like breakbeats. I was big into mm. like the heads and Left mm. Field. And like picking up on things like Orbital and Underworld, Chemical Brothers. You know, yeah. I, was, I didn't really, once I'd gone out of the whole sort of, you know, generic 140 BPM techno music, I kind of went more into the more left field electronic stuff. Uh, yeah. And then, you know, I heard Linkin Park Hybrid Theory, uh, one of the tracks or singles off that, I think it was One Step Closer probably. Yeah. Uh, and I was just like, man, I, 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 I'm digging this. And I got it back mixed into it. It come back to full circle. It came back, almost, yeah, because yeah. I was mixing the hip-hop with the samples and mm. obviously Limp Bizkit. And, you know, I had that period in sort of um, early 2000s, you know, when I was in my 20s, where I sort of went back into the alternative in, into the alternative world, hearing bands like In Me, uh, 100 Reasons, and Funeral for a Friend. And then I was just, you know, changed my whole direction again from electronic music back into that i still love electronic music uh, yeah, as much as yeah. i love you know um metal me rock and and me hardcore and i just saw this you know it's interesting how we had like the birth of kind of like that around sort of the early 90s then moving through the 90s as we get to the end of the 90s and move into the noughties there was it seems to be that that influenced a lot of the the metal guys as well like like you say lincoln park were like well we're gonna bring in all these samples and beats and stuff yeah. that were, 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 were alien to, to metal at that point. We're going to bring all these things. Slipknot brings in, like, you know, uh, as, a, as a DJ and stuff like that and a full percussion yep. type of section. And it seems like it kind of nicely snaked back around and it was almost necessary for the early 80s stuff and almost the hair metal to, to kind of die out, have this yeah. you know, electronic thing to come back and to refresh the tree, if you will. Like, it's interesting, yeah. So at this point, when do you start going to shows then? When are you going to start going to gigs? And, and um, I mean, because obviously, I, annoyingly, I missed that whole sort of Tivoli period when I grew up in Mould. Mm. And I literally, when I was a rocker in Mould and going to Richard Gwynn in Flint, I literally had no idea that the Tivoli existed wow. as a rock venue. No wow. one told me about it. I had no idea. And uh, so I, I completely missed that whole period. Yes. So my first real gig that I ever went to, sad as it sounds, was I went to go and see Corn. Trust Company and Puddle of Mud at the Manchester Arena. Right. Wow. Okay. I'm trying to. What date uh, that, was that? That was quite. That would be 2001. Yeah, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So that was my that was my first like rock rock gig. Wow. Uh, and then you know I took my girlfriend's brother at the time to go and see Avril Lavigne in about 2004. Obviously, I've been to a few other gigs. They went to Manchester to go and see In Me at J. Uh, not J. Bez Clegg. Um, Night and day on the Overgrown Eden tour because then they were, they were also playing Central Station yeah. uh, in Wrexham uh, and that was, that was the 2003, that was the summer and yeah. that was my first visit to Central Station in Wrexham was to go oh. and see In Me on the Overgrown Eden tour yeah. and then, uh, you know, I don't, I'd only travelled to Manchester a few times for a few shows and I just literally decided that I couldn't be arsed travelling to Manchester for shows um, yeah. so I was going to bring the shows to me Ah, um, well, that, yeah. What a what a beautiful segue. So he, he's such a professional. Is that like one of the, one of the one of the many things we'll get into is Ian's a promoter, and it's and it's always the question comes up as to why did you start promoting, and you've already answered it in so much as that you you, you didn't want to travel crazy distances. You wanted to yeah. do something locally that you could go to as well. So yeah. you know, was it was it a, a light switch moment? Was it like right tomorrow I'm going to start doing this? Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I was in. I mean, I was working for the Mirror newspaper in Chester mm. Business Park, and I was kind of like I, I just 
finished being a payroll person. Then I went into tax and taxation and then became a tax accountant. And it just got to the point where I was just like, this isn't for me anymore. Mm. I just don't want to do this. Uh, and then I just started getting more into music and started thinking about, oh, I want to do gigs. I want to put a band on. So I went and had a meeting in Central Station. I was like, I really want to start bringing some of these artists to, to, to Wrexham. Yeah. Uh, and they were just like, uh, yeah, sure. You know, took me under my wing, took, took me under their wing and just sort of like taught me how to do it. And I just started emailing everybody, really. Um, wow. I mean, I just started getting all these managers from America and Australia sending me their CDs and press packs and, you know, proper printed press packs with a yeah. CD. Yeah. yeah, yeah I remember, electronic kind, yeah. You know, I, I remember emailing Event Sevenfold. Uh, management company at the time and uh, they sent me over the you know the uh, unholy confession no uh, the fallen album yeah uh, and uh, with the uh, you know a picture of the band a proper picture proper photograph yeah NEPK. proper photo yeah proper photo and uh, you know i was talking about trying to bring a ven sevenfold over then they hadn't even got a uk agent at the time they hadn't yeah. got anything i just picked i just was you know watching scurs i was watching kerrang i was watching you know p-rock i was listening to whatever it was and just picking up you know bands that i wanted to bring mm. uh and looking at you know who was getting played on all the tv channels and thinking oh cool i want to bring those bands uh to rexham and i you know i think my first show that i did in rexham was 2003 and it would have been number one son okay yeah yeah uh, invisible noise at the time um yeah. fellow scousers uh yeah, and yeah, uh yeah. They, uh, yeah, they came along and it was the first time Central Station had, originally it was supposed to be an 18 plus venue mm. and then we booked number one son mm. and outside the venue was about 50 or 60 14 year olds. Yeah. And uh, the, the venue was just like, oh shit, what do we do? Um, yeah. So we, you know, we let them in and then we just checked, they, they, they applied for a license change to change it from 18 plus to 14 plus to start and allowing the younger wow. bits in. So that was by accident that I booked this band. Yeah. And then all of a sudden the license changed. Yeah. And then, you know, my second gig, I think, was My Ruin uh, with oh, totally, um, yeah, Charger yeah. and Murder One. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then uh, we did, oh, what else did we do that year? Oh, I can't remember now. That seems, that, if I'm totally honest, and that seems like a pretty steep learning curve that you like, number one. So, yes, it's a local band and there's an element of yeah. safety with that. But it's still, you know, that's, you, you're pretty much straight in the deep end of, of riders and having to deal with yeah I didn't start with like local showcases or anything like that because yeah, it seems at like that you time went straight in I didn't know what yeah. I didn't know any local bands it's, it's yeah. from booking the touring artists that I started finding out more about the local yeah. scene I literally because I mean wow. I moved from mold to Wrexham I didn't really know anybody um I had a house I was living with my partner at the time working in Chester so all my friends were all sort of mold Buckley Chester right. way uh, I didn't I didn't know anybody in Wrexham. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, you know, me doing those gigs sort of, you know, it started creating my friendship circle in Wrexham and then yeah. I started building from that. And then, you know, uh, 2004, um, I started the under-18s Rock Night Rebellion, uh, which it was, a, you know, a big thing that lasted seven years, I think it was. And it was like the biggest under-18s Rock Night in the whole of Wales. Mm. And we do, it's, you know, we do fire. as well, you, you have a, a really... Uh, good tact of being able to read the road and going okay well i'm putting this show on and it was a lot of under 18 so now i have to turn and figure out yeah. how to keep that it seems that i mean that's one of the things that people don't understand about good promoters and i will talk about good and bad side of, 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 of being a promoter of course, yeah, because yeah. the good side of it is that is someone like yourself who can go okay i'd like to do this i have this idea but also i have to be aware of my own environment and what what actually will make money and, and be a successful show course, but yeah. put those two together that's 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 great promoting that's kind of i've seen what what needs to happen and, and can do that 
But there's obviously those those promoters out there that exist, and we all know we all know them that just go. I'm just going to put a show on, and whatever happens happens. You know, and there's no sure. thought process, and there's no kind of due diligence, and there's no work put in. So when you were doing these these shows, it sounds like almost a crash course. To, you know, when they turn around and go, "This is the rider. This is the spec sheets for the stage. Sure. This is what we want." It was there a party that went like, "Oh shit!" You know, it was, was like, "Okay, I've I've got to really kind of." focus yeah i think because because i was getting the help from central station and the people behind it mm. and neil neil who was the in-house at the time was a great asset to me mm. and you know helped me learn about the riders the tech specs how to advance shows so i had the teachings from somebody who knew what they were doing and yeah. you know from the venue themselves which was you know a blessing i mean i didn't obviously go and hire the venue myself directly put the show on we worked together on it we you know <clears throat> we yeah. partnered up i would bring the artists in they'd help me finance it in, as, as such uh, and from that, we were able to sort of build a, a good relationship from yeah. there. That, that, um, that's what that, people forget about being yeah. a, a promoters and a venue's relationship is to, to maybe the the, the, the the uninitiated out there, the promoter and the venue are two separate entities. Um, the promoters can go around yeah. different venues all around wherever it may be. And the, the, the venue and, and, and artist and promoter relationship is absolutely key because the, yeah, they're constantly is, yeah. crossing over. They're constantly crossing over and paths. And when a venue doesn't understand the promoter and the promoter doesn't understand a venue, that's when the real problems start to happen. Uh, but it sounds no, like you've got a really good initial setup. Like Central Station's a fabulous place. I've both played there. I've, I've done shows there. Uh, I've toured through there. Um, and it's a, it's a fabulous place. Like, um, so when you, were, when you were kind of working with these bands and stuff, and, and did you find that you were learning pretty much on the fly and pretty quickly too? Were, were you making Yeah, no, very quickly. Of, I mean, you know... Um... I think this, uh, the first real mistake that we made, because, I, I mean, th- there's loads of bumping curves throughout it. I mean, the, the first shows that we really put on Essential, we didn't have, barriers didn't exist in 2003. Yeah. You know, we, did, we didn't put stage barriers on, crash barriers just weren't a thing. Yeah. And um, we did bands like Biffy Clyro and we did Block Party. Mm-hmm. And I think it was probably 2004 when we did Block Party. It might have been 2005, I can't remember. Um, and... You know, we had a sold out show for Block Party and there were proper hyping, proper buzz was out there. Everyone was going crazy for it. Yeah. And we had no barrier and literally we had a stage invasion. You know, we had okay. 500 people trying to get on stage and trying <laughs> to touch Kelly yeah. and just trying to, you know, you know, yeah, oh my God, this is it. And then yeah. so literally there was three of us at the front of the stage, wow. all linking arms <laughs> uh, to try and stop everyone getting on the stage and then just pushing yeah. them back. Yeah. Um, and then that was our first real mad experience of like a crazy, crazy crowd. Everyone wants to get on stage. And then obviously mm. as from that show, we were like, yeah, we should probably bring barriers in for gigs now. And that yeah. started to become a more of a normal thing. Uh, the crash barriers were starting to be, you know, to be uh, mm. required as part of contracts and shows. Yeah. So yeah, as you say, each, each show that happened. It becomes a, an evolution process. Like people, yeah, sure. we, we often talk about on the show, how, how did we get to this stage where, you know, the crowd at uh, 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 festivals are split in two and barriers and where did we get yeah. this? And, and essentially, ladies and gentlemen, this is all from, um, this is all from born from necessity. So yeah. one of the less exciting parts, but very much in, an important part of being a promoter is liability and insurance yeah, health and, and things safety, like yeah. that. Yeah, is the, you know, if someone hurts themselves, that can sometimes mean a venue entirely closes. It's, yeah, it's, a, serious, it's a serious as that. And, and, and that's something that, you know, some of the promoters that maybe or think of people thinking about promoting need to understand that there is a logistical element to this as well. Like when you talk then about advances. So for those that, that don't maybe understand what an advance is, what the would terminology, that be? Yeah. yeah. 
what, what um, would so that be? So in advancing a show, obviously when you've booked, you book your show. So let's say we're talking about touring artists, not so much a local band, but we're, mm. we're talking about touring artists. So initially the process would be I'd contact a booking agent and we'd negotiate a fee uh, to play a show. Yeah. And then once we've got that, we get the contracts, we go through the contracts, we, you know, cross out things that we don't agree with, send it back and they go, yeah, that's fine. You know, and then you sign it. Once you've signed the contract, you've gone through all your terms and conditions. That's a legally binding piece of paper that says you're going to do all these things. And obviously within that contract, it says that you will supply a catering rider as per attached and their technical specifications as per attached. So they sent you the tech spec and the catering rider and you've agreed to all these things. And then once you get to, you know, close to the show, uh, the band's representative or a tour manager or the band themselves, they'll get in touch with you and say, hey, we're playing your venue in four, five, six weeks time. Can you please send through all the advance information for the show? So which advancing that would be, can you send us your venue spec so we know what we're walking into? Can you send us the loading times? Can you send us uh, your lighting plot? Can you send us uh, possibly let us know who your front of house engineer is so that we can get in touch with them beforehand and have a chat about anything specific that we might want to have a chat about? Uh, can you let us know what your parking facility is like, whether there's showers there, dressing rooms? So you're basically giving them a full uh, information of exactly what to expect when they arrive at the venue. The, the basic way uh, I would explain to, to maybe like someone not, not in the business is when you go on holiday and you go to and you stay in a hotel, before you go on holiday, you do all that work. Don't you? you have a look at what the pool looks like. You exactly, have a look how yeah. close it is to the city centre. All the stuff you have a look at. Imagine if you're a band playing, I don't know, say 30 dates in the UK. Every hotel you go to is completely different. Where you park, what the beds look like, everything's different. So, you know, the, there's an enormous amount of hubris with some promoters that think that they're the only people in the world. And so... As you step off that tour bus, everything needs to be answered first. And something as simple as not having showers. Think about that for a second, ladies and gentlemen. That if you have been traveling all the way up from, from London, your first show is in, in, in Wales, and it's a couple of hours' journey, you've come off the ferry, there's no showers you, you could get to on there, you, there's no showers on the bus or on, in, in the van. Having, not having a shower can suddenly become a really big deal. And then think about the you know if there's certain lighting things that you can't have and you've got a show based around those lights the, you know the, there's a strobe at a particular moment during the middle eight or whatever all these things are tiny 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 bumps that can really drastically affect the show and like Ian says it's a legally binding document someone can turn up to your show and if you haven't met the requirements of these shows they can say we're not playing because the contract isn't isn't is hasn't been fulfilled and it's an incredibly serious part of the business, but something that I feel that the people listening to this that want to promote and want to become a promoter need to realise. I don't want to put people off, and but it certainly has to be a reality check that there is um, legal requirements to, to doing this and doing this well. But as I always try and keep it positive, um, that does mean that it, it, you have to care about what you do. Yes, and I think, absolutely. You, you know, certainly talk to Ian on the occasions that we've, we, we've talked is that you genuinely care about the, the punters, the, the show, the whole thing. You can't do that uh, whole process and the, all those little things we talked about with not really caring about what you do and, and, and about the performances that go on and being very proud. It sounds like you talk about those earlier shows with real pride. You know, I brought this band to this. Yeah, I mean, I, I put up on my Facebook recently I, I, a little like folder collection of all the shows that I did in Wrexham and Chester because, I mean, half the artwork that we have, we, we, we didn't, 
have, I mean, I didn't know what Photoshop was then. I was using yeah. word art or something like that. And yeah. I didn't, you know, I don't have the computers that I had back then. And then we were using MySpace and Flickr. And I can't remember all the fucking logins for <laughs> all the things that I've had over the years. So trying to, you know, trawling through Google, trying yeah. to find posters and tours that you'd been on. Yeah. And like, you know, I just whacked them all in. And there's, there's hundreds in there of all the shows yeah. that I brought to Central Station, all the live rooms over the last sort of, uh, you know, 17 years. And it's just a nice, you know, snapshot. And it is a snapshot. There are so many other shows that I couldn't mm. find the details for. And some of them were quite big, you know, shows that I want to remember. Sure. And like, you know, I've seen a lot of people go through them all, all the friends that I've made through doing the shows. And it's mm. like, oh, mate, that's a memory. I remember playing with Skindred, you know, because back when we did those shows in Wrexham, is a lot of the times it was the local support, local bands yeah. that were playing with Skindred, the local yeah. bands that were playing with Suicide Silence. I mean, I don't think we had a local band play with Bring Me The Horizon, but Shikari, when they first played, Do you, you know, we had four local bands. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, we, we, we got uh, lots of local bands uh, playing with, you know, quite big artists. Mm. And it was just nice to see that's a lot of the, the bands grow. That's a really interesting thing you bring up because we often talk about the scene and we often talk about the local scene and what you can do as a person and as a fan and as, uh, as a, whichever sort of part of the business you are to support the scene. And one of the interesting things that a promoter has to do is sometimes a touring band will come through and they'll maybe not have a, tour, uh, a, a support band or at least one support band because there just isn't enough space. So they'll ask the, the, the promoter to put on some locals to put on local supporting artists to, that they think will fit with the band. Maybe yeah. one, maybe two, two bands. And that's where, um, uh, that's where a lot, I find a lot of bands make some faux pas that they kind of just bombard uh, promoters saying, oh, Skindred are playing, we want to play yeah. with Skindred. Or, and you'll get that and you'll get like this endless, you know, and they're, they're not good enough, these bands, and that's the reality. Or the, the, You've got to think about the whole show. But also... You've got to think about who will work well with them from a personal sure. point of view. If, if, if a band you want to put on a, a silly or whatever it may be, that's not going to work for you because they're going to represent you. Did you find that a lot in the early days before you've kind of found bands you trusted who could be good support? Did you have to kind for of... sure, I think um, a lot... A lot of the bands that we book, I mean, as you say, so some of them come through with a full touring entourage, so there's no mm. options to add uh, local yeah. bands. But there was, there was uh, more often than not, there was only like one or two supports. And, you know, we were a big supporter back then. I mean, I'm still am a supporter of the scene, but back then we were really, really strong advocates of trying to f- put on local bands mm. from North Wales uh, on a bill um, because we wanted to help the scene grow. That was what it was yeah. all about. It was about growing the scene because, I mean, when I first started, there didn't seem to be that much of an alternative scene mm. uh, within Wrexham. And, uh, you know, over the however many years I was there doing the club nights and the gigs, it seemed to grow and grow and grow. And, you know, you'd see... It's, there were so many bands out there. And as soon as you announced the show, you'd be bombarded by about, you know, 20, 30 bands. Oh, can we support this? Can we support that? Can we support this? And it was, it was great then because you had yeah. this big, massive database of all these artists. And to be fair, I checked all of them out. Mm. And sometimes it's always about giving that band an opportunity. Sometimes, you know, they might not be good enough, but that's when we started doing showcase nights. And we started doing, you know, the smaller gigs to give them the opportunity to hone their craft a little bit just to, you know, so they were able to play in front of a couple hundred people because there's nothing daunting. Obviously, yeah. it's a local band and you're playing local showcases to 30, 40 people. Then yeah. all of a sudden, you've got the opportunity to go and play in front of 300 people. Mm. You've got to go out there and impress those 300 people. And I can tell you that metal fans are <laughs> the hardest fans to yeah. please from the yeah, moment they, you get on there. You, you know, know they, they will want. tear you apart yeah. in some aspects. It's interesting you bring up showcases as well. Like, I'm always, I'm a big fan of showing a band the route to being successful, you know, do this, sure. do this, do this, do whatever. I talk about it on the metal to the masses and the battle to bloodstock and how that can, and how, and how they should act. 
And a showcase is, is your perfect example of that is that you're not quite ready to support a band that's going to pull in three, 400 people or whatever. So yeah. you, you, you earn your craft, you hone your craft, if you will, then. Then you support a bigger band. You learn a little bit more about how to run a crowd and that. But also yeah. simultaneously run alongside this is now we've explained, ladies and gentlemen, the type of things that a promoter will have to deal with on a day-to-day basis of the show. Understand that you go into them if you're a support band, a local support band, kicking off about something is not top of the pops. It's not going to work. It's not going to enjoy you. To You've got to be that person that's like, oh, uh, there's no one turned up to move the barriers to the front. I'll help you do that. I'll help you do yeah. that. What the rider's missing, this particular cheese, I'll go to the spa and buy. Be that person that helps at a show. The promoter's got enough to deal with. Uh, make that run smoothly. Aside from being a good band, you should be a good band. You should be ready to go, okay, I'll help out. I'll carry this this uh, this thing in. I'll help out. Be ready. Don't just turn up 20 minutes before you're on and expect to suddenly you know, be rock and roll. It doesn't work like that. Um, so when you were doing uh, this type of thing, did you go to... I'm always interested in this. Did you go to other people's shows as well? And are you cursed, like I am to a certain degree, of watching a show and going, I wouldn't have put that there? And that that's gonna that's gonna, uh, gonna cause a problem. Are you cursed like me? Yeah, so I mean every time I mean <laughs> it was hard because obviously being in Wrexham, there wasn't much else happening. The Tivoli at that time wasn't that yeah. active. Yeah. You know, I, I worked at the Tivoli, I was DJing their club nights. Um they weren't actively putting on gigs at that point. So the only place that was putting on shows in north wales at that time was me yeah. so the only shows i was going to were mine yeah, yeah. um so occasionally i'd travel out to liverpool or manchester for a gig but not that often because i was i was quite busy within Mexico, so i didn't have that much time whilst yeah. holding down full-time jobs at blockbusters and then the pubs yeah. and all that sort of stuff because i wasn't yeah. you know i wasn't making a living off it back then to, yeah. as i am now so i had to find other ways to finance everything uh, and to be able to pay my rent um so yeah I'd, you know when i did go out to other shows or festivals i'd be always looking and think oh that's gonna cause a problem you're gonna keep <laughs> over that you know you, you, yeah. that's gonna you know oh you should definitely uh, those cables on the stage that's a very messy very messy stage there there's gonna be lots of problems with changeovers especially yeah. when you go to someone's uh, someone else's all day when there's yeah. like nine different bands playing and all the cables are all just turning yeah. around and you've got this big massive ball of cable that needs untangling they, i'm know, obsessed with 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 stage times so overrunning when a band overruns or they or well, they yeah. change every so long i'm losing my mind in the crowd like uh, some bands just don't get it sometimes yeah. they really don't i mean you know you give them the times it's like you're two minutes over they're like yeah yeah we've got, and then then they go they're already over and then they go oh last song i'm like no 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 no. that was your last song you know you've got to have a look at the time because yeah. if you keep on doing it and the next band goes over the next band goes over mm. we've got like a five or ten minute window to change over everything to the main headland band who people have mostly come to pay to see yeah. and you know they're going to be the ones that are like well, you're not cutting our set shorts you're gonna to have to go over your curfew I'm like i can't go over my curfew and they're like well then you should have kicked all those bands off stage you know, yeah, it's like yeah. to trying to keep people happy and giving everyone the opportunity. But quite frankly, some bands over the years have absolutely taken the piss. Yeah, yeah. Well, people don't understand things like a hard and a soft care for you. Like most of the time now, we talked about this um, on, on, on the last last podcast, there's like a hard care for you is say it's 11 o'clock. It's because there's a club night on maybe or worse yep. than that. There's sound restrictions because you're in a residential absolutely. area. Yep, totally. Yeah, totally. That can close a venue down. Yeah, you can lose your license. Um, and the other thing is, it's like there's nothing worse than when the headline bands on stage, 
and half your audience has got to fuck off to go and get the bus or the yeah. train because that's yeah. when the last trains are. So we yeah. always try to make sure that we finished just enough time so people weren't missing the show. They've got a little bit of chance to go and get some. Sometimes it wasn't always possible, but yeah. always, you know, to go and get some merch, watch all the show, and you haven't got to fucking, you know, have a heart attack getting to the, the train station yeah. or the bus. To and and this, whole, this whole experience that a band has when they come to your house, essentially, uh, yeah. that whole experience reverberates out. So uh, we'll get into talking about, about about booking agents now and what, what, what that is because it, it kind of leads on quite nicely. Is that so? Say a band does do that and they have a really great show, they that that will get back to to their management. It will get back to booking agents who are not the same thing. You know, it will get back to other bands that tour. And this is when we get into touring cycles. And one of the interesting things, and we'll, we'll move into the live rooms as well. One of the great things I got to see, I got to see the live rooms in its initial inception, because it's probably one of the most local venues to me, moving through um, and improving and, and, and everything from structurally to everything, and as it became a, a, a touring cycle, part of that whole touring, touring cycle. So when we talk about like bands having good experiences, it's not a one and done. If a band has a bad experience, that can affect all a whole host of other bands who want to come to your house and, and realise it's not a nice house, you know. And so when we talk about about booking agents for the, for the maybe those that aren't, aren't aware of what a booking agent does, you, you would have had experiences with dealing with them as getting people on tour and cycles. So what does a booking agent do then for those that maybe aren't aware of that? A booking agent is essentially a glorified uh, job finder. Mm. So, you know, when, when you, you know, when you haven't got a job, you go down to the local job center to try and find something for you to go and do. So essentially what I do is I help artists find shows. You know, they, they, to try and find, you know, uh, put a tour together for an album or just generally when I first started was basically just booking shows. So they were out on the road trying to make some money, boosting their profile and just, you know, basically going out there and playing. It's only as I've progressed over the years that I didn't do that sporadic. Oh, let's book 30 dates across the year or, let's, you know, let's route a tour properly. Let's do two weeks here. Let's do a week here or five days or, you know, a full six week tour across Europe, et cetera, et cetera. So what my, my role is, is to basically find and grow an artist uh, so that they can, you know, grow their audience, you know. So, you know, the first point of call would be to find them work. So book shows. The second point of call is, right, we've hit a ceiling. We're only pulling in 50, 60 people a night. Uh, or you know 100 people a night and we need to take it to the next stage so they need to be supporting bigger artists so you know then you go and find those support slots to help that artist grow you know on a cycle um you know you've got the big festival season so it's a case of right to maximize the growth of that artist i want to put them in front of as many people as i possibly can do so i want to try and get those artists on the best festivals that i can to make sure that they play in front of 500 to 50,000 people depending on who the artist is um, and that's yeah, that's essentially my job is to find them work. It, it, it's uh, it's kind of like shifted, like um, you know, say 10, 15, maybe twenty years ago, um, there were scouts that would go from major record labels and stuff, and they would go yeah. out and they would find bands and find what the newest thing was. It seems that like certainly from the sort of the bands that I found have been discovered, is it shifted slightly to there seems to be a real onus on booking agents because that seems to a live music being obviously where the lifeblood of of most new bands are it seems to have shifted there one of the things that the the, the maybe people aren't aware of and uh, it's certainly the case with ian is that your reputation is absolutely paramount as a booking agent absolutely, because yes. you're suggesting things to people so for example the way it would, mm. would equate it is if you're if you if you 
have someone who suggests a film to you every week. You watch this film every week, and all those films are consistently good that you, they suggest you, you watch. You're almost going to carte blanche whatever they put in front of you. Go, yes, you, you don't even need to see it. Yes, I'll watch that because of your say-so. Uh, the same can be true if, it, if, it, if it's bad suggestions very quickly. You don't listen to what they suggest because everything they've suggested is, is not very good. That's, a booking yes. agent will be that. So they will go, okay, we think this artist will work with your band. Um, we think that they will complement each other musically and that will work. And it's kind of like you say, like that initial introduction, hey, you meet this person, you meet that person, go off and, and make a great tour. Um, yeah. And it's interesting that you talk about that being as a tiered process. The first you play in front of so many people, we make sure that works. And then we make sure this works. And that's probably the biggest sort of um, fallacy that people think about the, about live music and about a band growing up is that everybody's heard about a band that they, they go, oh, they haven't even recorded a song, or they've only recorded two songs, and all, uh, all of a sudden they're massive. They're not. It doesn't work like that. There's, there's always uh, the overnight sensation. And in reality, there's been a ton of work leading up to that. Um, and that's the other thing we talk about on the show, about bands putting the work in with a booking agent to understand what, they're meant to be doing the, the booking agent's got an idea of where their journey will take them and they've got to work with that not expect suddenly to go why aren't we touring with metallica it's not like that it yeah, doesn't, totally. there needs to be a scaled build up to it and that comes from another relationship with a booking agent so i mean what was the first sort of acts you were kind of working with as a booking agent then i mean when i first started so we're going back to probably about 2006 might be 2007 so you know i was promoting shows in Wrexham. i had my club night was dj and i was just like oh i really want to do some other aspects of the music industry uh, and then i saw a post somewhere probably on myspace or something else i don't know but there was a record label in worcester called lockjaw records and <clears throat> they were looking for somebody to help with uh, press and publicity to promote their artists so i went down at a meeting with the label owner uh, jack at the time um you might remember a band called tribute to nothing um, yes, but they yeah. were so they were they were from Worcester they worked the label and their dad owned the label um, and they were th- they were three brothers and their dad so I went down to Worcester had a had a meeting with him and you know we hit off so basically I became a press and publicity agent for a record label which involved me going down to London very regularly with loads of releases in my backpack loads of you know blank C- the CDs little you know little plastic wallets with a CD in there a little picture a uh, little uh, EPK and going around um, all the magazines. So I'd go to the Terrorizer office, the Rock Sound office, the Kerrang office, the Metal Hammer office, the Total Rock office, and, you know, all the offices in there and just hand deliver all these CDs to them and actually, you know, try and get a meeting with them and say, look, can we get a review? Can we get a feature? And all that sort of stuff. And then I started hitting a brick wall because we were working with smaller artists that hadn't quite got the profile uh, and weren't playing shows. So it got to a point where, Oh, we can't, you know, what's their touring activity like? I'm like, oh, we haven't got anything yet. Well, we don't really put anything in the magazines unless there's a tour to promote the yeah. release. We'll, we'll push the release, but we need, we need the tour. We need the shows uh, to, you know, there needs to be something to anchor it against. So then I went back and I was just like, look, you know, I'm struggling. So I need to start booking these bands some shows. And then basically that's how it started is I started booking uh, all the bands that were on the record label at the time, I started booking their shows and started sure. getting them tours and trying to get them on festivals and trying to, you know, grow that way. Uh, and that, you know, was with reasonable success. I was mixing both of them. We fell out. It happens. Uh, but then I ended up joining a bigger agency uh, with a much bigger roster uh, called Factory Music, which is based in Folkestone. And then I was there for six, seven years. 
you know, I was working, you know, we did at the time with, with like bands like Three Inches of Blood, um, Firewind, uh, Anterior, Malefice, what did Sharon, Wolf, um, oh, I can't remember, a lot of power metal stuff from Scandinavia, yeah. a lot of extreme metal. Um, so yeah, that, and, that, and that's uh, how it came about from that. I left that and went to work with a US company called TKO. Mm. Uh, I'm working with you know bigger artists like Raging Speed on Wednesday 13, and now booking me, even though it was one of the first shows I went to as well. I now book yeah. them, so it's kind of weird how the circle goes back around. Yeah. Um, I work with uh, American Hi-Fi 303, uh, and I've worked with you know all sorts of sort of pop punk metalcore artists, mostly alternative over the years. And that's sort of, you know, that's how I got into the whole booking agency side of things. Yeah. So there's like one of the things that, uh, that, that maybe people aren't aware of. Now, that's why we often talk about these things on, on the show is that so TKO is uh, is essentially an American and uh, company, if you will, American. Yes. And they, they have obviously have a stable of bands that they want to go out to Europe and, and beyond and whatever. And yep. so they need uh, that contact with someone in the UK and, and, and they need someone who's aware of the venues and things like capacity of venues and which venues are good and bad and all the rest of it. And then they will, they will, it's much like a, uh, like a booking agent does for bands. Uh, they do for the, the, the big, the bigger companies. So like you want the, one of the biggest things you want to do as a promoter is you want to be recognized that you can take and become part of a tour and band cycle. And I keep saying tour and cycle. And, and for those that aren't aware, it's essentially a tour cycle is like when Ian's talking about when you launch an album, uh, and it seems very obvious to say that there should be a tour to support it. These things, even now in an electronic age, there's many wheels moving. A video will come out that will be part of a tour, which will be part of an album release. And there's a pre-tours and things like that. And, and things like all these are, are, are part of a massive mechanism. And so a, a place like TKO will go to Ian and be like, we, we're, we're thinking of bringing over... Uh, you know, Head P or someone like that or, or Fozzie and we'll think of bringing them over and they will already know that you have a, a circle, if you will, a tour cycle of places and shows that they will play. And this becomes a set sort of route. So if you put in a GPS on your car, I want to go to this place, that's the route you go. Now, a lot of these companies don't want to do the legwork of figuring out which the best place to play in Wales, what's the best place to play in Birmingham. They don't want to figure that out. And the larger venues are taken up by larger artists, so they want, they have to navigate this. Essentially, Ian becomes a navigator and goes, okay, I think you should probably play this venue, that venue, and whatever. And I keep going back to it, but it's very important. How much do you think, then, that the reputation of someone like Ian is on the line there? If a band doesn't, you know, and a venue doesn't show up that he suggested, it becomes completely important. But once you get past that and you start to, generate a relationship you must have found an enormous amount of doors opening of bands that you could work with once you proved that you weren't a fool and you were you knew what you were doing yeah absolutely i mean when i first started as i say when i first started it was working with you know smaller artists at lockjaw and then obviously when i moved to factory you know i wanted to make some more money so you know the money comes from the bigger artists you know it's, yeah. it's really hard i mean the, the general rule of thumb is that an agent gets 10 percent commission on the show fee so you can imagine when you're working with really small bands, uh, for example, yeah. Lockjaw Records, you know, trying to get 50 quid out of promoters is hard work. Yeah. You know, 10% yeah. of 50 quid is a fiver. Yeah. I can guarantee you that I put more than an hour's work into, <laughs> into booking yeah. that Most particular definitely. show, you know. Most definitely. So, you know, when you're talking about a 10-day tour, you know, Muggins here earns 50 quid. Yeah. Which, you know, that's probably, back then was probably a day's work. Yeah. 
but it took me a lot longer than a day to put all that together. So in, in reality, the amount of effort that goes into it, plus how much, you know, an agent makes, it's, it's, it's worlds, worlds apart. Yeah, the, only, yeah. the only time that gap gets smaller and it feels a bit worthwhile is when your artists are actually getting a thousand pounds a show or two thousand pounds a show because all of a sudden yeah. you're getting 200 quid yeah for that same amount of work you know it's it's the work never really changes the work mm. the work output that goes into even the smallest tour or the biggest artist tour is very very similar mm. you know it's a lot easier to sell an artist a value a name to a mm. promoter if they think oh i'm gonna I, I, you know wednesday 13 for example oh absolutely I'm definitely gonna make money i mean you know, he's in murder dolls frankenstein drag queens he's sold out loads of shows he's done this that and the other that promoter yeah. is going to say yeah i'm definitely going to sell 500 600 700 tickets for that artist yeah. the smaller bands are a lot harder to get out there because that promoter is taking a risk because mm. they don't know whether that small artist is going to actually bring in the amount of ticket sales to warrant how much he's yeah. the band are being paid for example because yes. because as well as as tour cycles and we're, we're, most people think about individual shows but what yep. will happen is then you'll you'll put together like a tour package. So it'll yes. be a, a lot of shows. And if you think about it, ladies and gentlemen, we're going from, we already talked there about, you know, risking uh, in Central Station, risking nights not working. and probably, yep. Imagine that times 20 or whatever. All of a yeah. sudden the risk just balloons up to this, if, both financially and otherwise, you know, of, of what's going to work and what, what isn't. And it becomes a massive, it, and it always, I mean, at every level, I've, I've been privileged enough to work at like, some high levels. Those problems don't change necessarily. But you were working your apprenticeship at these sort of smaller shows. You're kind of learning the game and you're learning how yep. things work. And it's almost like proving yourself before someone goes, okay, here's a big tour package. Here's, here's someone of, 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 with, a, with a weighted name, with, you know, yep. with, which is a really big deal. And did you, did you, was it noticeable when you started taking on those larger bands? Did, you, did it feel comfortable or was it always still... Um, it was, you know, you're always learning because mm. with, with bigger artists, obviously back then I was primarily focused on UK artists. Yeah. As it got bigger, I started working with more foreign artists, you know, whether they're from Australia, whether they're from Germany or whether they were from the US. Yeah. And I remember picking up this uh, one band called The Hint, which were like a, a Panic at the Disco, Fallout Boy-esque right. uh, band yeah. who had had uh, the guy who did the two big uh, the, the big Fallout Boy record and the big Panic Disco record. Right. He did. The, he, he produced their albums. So he, he produced the Hints album as well, and it was a really fantastic album. I was like, oh, definitely, this is this is going to be great. Definitely. So you know, I, I bought them a tour, and then uh, flew them in. Didn't sell out any visas or work permits because I completely okay. forgot about all that shit. Sure. Uh, so the well, band were just like, how the fuck do we get in? I went separate. <laughs> don't walk in. <laughs> don't walk in together. <laughs> yeah, don't walk in together, all separate and go through different um, aisles yeah. and hopefully, you know, you pass all their questions and you get through. And I shit myself, but they all got through and we made it yeah. in the end. Yeah, uh, I've, I've, been at, I've been at that terminal in, uh, in, in Heathrow many, many times where I've been like, just, just, you're visiting your mates, that you just, yeah, you know, yeah, you've yeah. got a gap here, so I, honestly, and yeah. you've got a trolley full of all the gear and you're like, don't, don't, don't do this. And and it, it's strange, like, because this this goes on. This the, when we when we we'll, and we'll get into the pandemic and, and the lockdown, sure enough. Yeah. But this goes on every day. You can go to your, your the, the the nearest sort of airport and see all these struggling bands still carrying their own gear and their own bits and yeah. pieces. And it, it happens all the time. Technology, as much as it's affected what what you do and we do, and um, there's some things that just are never going to change. Things like being able to work with people. 
being able to talk to people and and and, and listen and, and and understand things like i say not being a dickhead it is so it's so important to the process that technology will 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 never take take away so well at what point when do we get into um surprise your dad when do we get into that when's that um, from so yeah obviously you got Wrexham um I was doing really really well there and to some degree uh, it was kind of like Wrexham great town I loved being there had lots of great times there it got to a point where it was kind of like everything that was happening in Wrexham I want to go to I was doing yeah. so it's kind of like you know suffocation is probably the right word for it right it's just you know everything that was happening in Wrexham uh it was mostly either I was I was DJing the student nights that I was at I was getting smashed at the student nights I was DJing at. Yeah. You know, I was doing the club nights. Everything that happened, it was involved around me being involved in it in some capacity. Mm. Uh, and then uh, Saving Grace was, uh, my, you know, my current partner went to university in Birmingham. And it was kind of like, you know, she's going to be there for a good four years. And what do I do? Right. So, you know, she moved and uh, I was just like, I'm just going to follow Sure. Um, so I, you know, I, I, I left Wrexham. I was still working the venue, still working the Chester venue, and I was just kind of like, mm-hmm. I can, you know, it was getting to a point where obviously computers take up a lot of your time. You're not doing the whole phoning thing, you know, everything's on emails. It doesn't yeah. matter where you do it from. You can your office is wherever you put it. Yeah. So I was just like, I can do whatever I do at Wrexham and Chester, mm. somewhere else. So I made the big leap to actually move to Birmingham. Uh, got an apartment, and uh, you know. From there, built up some relationships in Birmingham. And because of what I was doing in Wrexham and Chester, I was able to uh, find a couple of guys who, you know, through some friends that I made in Birmingham who were opening up a new venue uh, in Birmingham called the Ublek, which was like, you know, <clears throat> a nice 300 capacity. It was inside the custard factory, which is right in the center of Birmingham. Yeah. Lovely space. And then I was able to transfer all the skills that I'd learned over the years and, you know, use that to bring artists to Birmingham. Mm. Bringing artists to Wrexham surprisingly is a lot easier and bringing the artists that I want in Birmingham right. because in Birmingham is a big city and big sure. cities are usually um, coordinated by much, much bigger companies and much, much bigger promoters. Yeah. So, you know, in Wrexham where there's only me, there's no one else to compete with me yeah. in Birmingham, a lot more competition, a lot more people out there doing it. Uh, and obviously you've already got, you know, big, massive corporate venues, the O2s yeah. and the Academy music groups. So they already had a plethora of, people working at those venues that were booking those artists in so for me to try and you know procure those artists away from other people or find artists that hadn't already got a historical promoter in Birmingham it was hard yeah um so eventually you know we we we, we cracked it we had a good calendar I was booking you know bringing in new artists because I had a relationship so that was helpful that was able to talk to a lot of people that I'd already worked with uh in Wrexham and Chester and be able to bring these artists um to to the Ublek that lasted a couple of years until we fell out um, again, usually over money. It's usually what happens in this industry, what sadly. Yeah. Um, and then off the back of that, I basically was just like, I don't need a venue. Mm. I can do this all on my own. Yeah. So that's when I set up my own company. So I took a couple of the guys that I was working with there, mm. uh, Brady, who's in Conjurer, and uh, a guy called Nick. And we both left that. And I set up Surprise You Dead uh, as a company to promote shows in that venue, but also yeah. in all the other venues in Birmingham. So all of a sudden, I had this company where I wasn't tied to a specific venue. In Wrexham, I was tied to Central Station. In Chester, I was tied to the live rooms. But in Birmingham, I had this company where I was allowed, I, I was able to use all 40 venues in Birmingham to yeah. put on shows. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then again, I focused my attentions more on the alternative music scene, whereas Wrexham in Chester was kind of like, I was a diary filler there in the sense that I had to bring in 
a multitude yeah. of artists, whether they're folk, indie, electronic, DJs, bands, whatever. And then uh, in Birmingham, I, I basically surprised you dead, became this focal point for alternative music in Birmingham. It's now been five or six years since we did our first show. And, you know, we're doing like 200, 230 shows a year in Birmingham, different levels, you know, from the 50 capacity shows up to the main room institute shows up to one and a half thousand. And, you know, that's essentially, you know, another part of the aspect that I do is, you know, got my own company and I put on shows in Birmingham. It, it, it's, it's really interesting that you, you what, what, what Ian's talking about is finding your niche, finding what works for what you want to do, you know, and quite rightly, you know, if you go to a large city, there'll be an arena, there'll be a, a, a you know, 15,000 venue, there'll, there'll, there'll be those and, you've got to kind of find out what you want to help and what, where your sorts of skills are. And over a period of time, it, it's clearly in that you've, you've, you've kind of found the music that you are knowledgeable about and, and kind of yeah. have a good basis in the people that work within that business. And then you've found those niches that work for you. And that, that's what being, uh, you know, ultimately promotion and booking agents and that type of thing is all about is kind of finding where, what suits you best, what works best for you. So if you were, and we'll get into like venues in a sec um, is if, if I'm sitting listening to this now and I think where I live, be it in the States or Australia or somewhere in Europe or whatever it may be, and I, there isn't a local scene for me and I'd like to become a promoter. What, what are those first steps? Um, kind of a bit similar to how I started, I guess is, you know, find out what your local venue is. You know, if, you, if, 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 if you've got a venue that you go to regularly uh, as a gig goer, and you like in you like that venue is go and have a chat with that venue uh, and see if they're willing to sort of help you grow into 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 a promoter or mm. the other aspect of it is is you just go and book an artist obviously you know, find out what the venues are first uh figure out what bands work in those venues and then if you want to become a promoter is then obviously contact the artist that you want to book and obviously you know make sure there's it ticks a few boxes first make sure that you like them uh that you are passionate about what they're doing and secondly, you know, think about whether you can actually make some money off it. It's hard. I mean, even if it's just to break even, obviously mm. a lot of promoters out there, they, they do it for fun. Um, and I think my mindset always has been is that I, this is the career path that I want it to be. So as much as it was about doing the fun things and doing bands that I really, really liked, in the back of my mind, it's like, how do I make this not lose me any money? Yeah. And if I make money great you know the, yeah. the, the the basis is is i don't want to lose any money i want to i want to i want to put a gig on i want to walk to that gig i want to come out of that gig knowing that i haven't lost my house yeah. i haven't lost my car you know yeah, i haven't lost a couple yeah. hundred quid that i'd spend on my week shopping or whatever mm. and it's having that mindset that you're going in there and treating it as a business mm. and rather you know yes the hobbyists are fantastic and everyone needs the hobbyists in the music industry but i think mm. even the hobbyists should think about how not to lose money on shows. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's incredible a part of it because like like you say, you're dealing with people's entire lives. You know, you're losing yeah. a house, losing a car. It's, it, these are really important and serious things. Often when people talk business uh, regarding music, because music is an art form, business is always kind of closed door. Don't bring the business in here. And, and stuff. Yeah. In reality, you have to have a, a, a good understanding of it to make that art. Like Zapper always said that, you know, um, the first thing advice to give to anybody is get a good lawyer. You know, get be understood the lawyer because with that it enables you to do great things and and do musical things that you want to want to do. And and so you know, it's often and certainly from sorts of, like you say the hobbyists and the idealists have kind of I'll just put a show on whatever. 
You have to understand yeah. in order to keep that going, in order to make that really successful, you have to have a party that understands the business side of it. There has to sure. be. We've talked about like, you know, liability and stuff and people getting injured. We talked about people's lives. Eventually you'll you know, you'll get to a situation like here where you have people who work with you and for you and they've got lives and you you can't you can't play fast and loose with that thing. You have to be no. there has to be some sort of thing to it. Which leads us, unfortunately, to, to, to the terrible business that we have to talk about now, where we're in a situation where we have to put things together, like the Save Our Venues initiative and stuff, where yep. we've had a, we, we're in the middle of uh, the pandemic. There's, there's a huge problem with, with, with live music that doesn't seem to be getting any closer to being solved. Um, and we're losing venues and uh, people with skill sets at an alarming rate. There's, I talked to one of my friends who's, um, a uh, lightning engineer and he now has a, essentially a nine to five job to keep the, to keep his house and what have you yep. and he may never return to to the to these roles we're losing people like yourself to um to to the fact that live music can't exist how has it affected you um how's it affected what you're doing and what's your thoughts on how the hell we we, we get out of this and what are those steps i mean it's 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 affected everybody you know from, mm. from the ground up you know this industry i don't know the exact figures but it, it, it's 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 a couple of hundred million yes. a year that, that you know it brings to the british economy um so you imagine you know you go to a venue you have uh, the guy who runs the venue you have the bar staff who serve the drinks you have the person who works on the on the till you know taking your tickets yeah. Uh, behind the scenes that you don't know about you'll have the front of house engineer you'll have the crew loading in the equipment you'll have the lighting engineer you know you'll have um you know even down to the, the you know the cleaners of the venue you know you'll have the, the 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 bands themselves you'll have their touring personnel you know you think about all the moving parts that happen within a show all their livelihoods are, are, are gone at the moment there is no income for any of us you know it's 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 a, a harsh reality march the 15th was the last show that i put on and since then, I probably should have had another 60 shows, um, but they've all, you know, been postponed or cancelled. Mm. You know, as a booking agent, you know, I had six or seven tours all lined up that have all moved or cancelled. You know, this, the, the festival season in the, it, 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 in the world is a massive, massive income stream for artists. Um, and that's all gone, you know, it's, if, if, if touring is supposed to be the lifeblood of a band and that's where they buy their, you know, people buy their CDs, the vinyl, the t-shirt, the merch, you know, the, the wheels that keep that artist going is, you know, they haven't got that stream anymore. Mm. They've got to find ways of doing it. So it's, yeah, this whole industry, the venues, there's 800 of them that are all part of the music venues trust that are literally on their ass right now, you know, 400 of them ish have been saved. Uh, through the crowdfunding but that's 50 percent there's another 50 percent out there that are literally dying yeah. waiting for some sort of help from the government further help because obviously when when this happened boris johnson decided to give a lot of venues you know uh business rates relief um or grants etc which is supposed to only last them three months he literally said to us basically in in, in a roundabout way you take this money and i want you to close for three months this is what he said to everybody, you know, when he gave, when he gave the furlough scheme, when he gave, uh, you know, all the, the help, he basically said, we need you to stay at home for three months and I'm going to pay you to do it. Mm. Well, three months has passed and there's still no sort of help, extra help from the government to say, right, you're going to stay closed until 2021. Mm. Uh, that's great. Are you going to pay us to stay closed? You know, this isn't our fault. You haven't told 
you know, the, the industry didn't crumble because of anything apart from one, the virus, and two, the actions that you told all yeah. these venues to do. You know, you shut you shut down the entire economy quite rightly. We needed to obviously get through this, mm. um, but you know, they've made the, some the bad lack decisions. of information is is deafening. Exactly, it's, 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 it's ridiculous. It's and, and there's a, there's a, there's an, an element of context to this as well is that pr- before this even started, before even anybody coughed, before that whole part. The industry was in a really difficult position before that. It's fragile as, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it was in a really, really tough situation before. There was venues closed, and I was kind of doing some bits and pieces to help some, some places stay, stay open and talk to a lot of people about with, whose venues were on the, on the borderline of closing. Before this happened, we were, yep. the, 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 the scene was ill before we even caught this illness, and now it's even worse. And... One of the things that, that maybe people don't realize is, like you say, the, the sheer amount of people that are involved in a production. We've talked throughout this podcast about um, agents and people, that, even to the guy that drives the, the bus or whatever. All these people have spent their lives, most of their lives, learning to do that thing, and that thing yeah. has now been removed, and they can't do that. And so, you know, I, I, I read, I think it was yesterday or the day before, that um, Germany has started to free up some funds for their um, artistic endeavours, which seems yeah, like... New Zealand possible. have also uh, thrown out a whole load of money at the culture industry as a whole, yeah. uh, including, you know, live music venues. Australia are putting a package together now to save theirs. I think America are also working on something. Yeah. Um, you know, it's always been the way that other countries support their arts far better than the uk ever has done mm, you know there's been a lot of money when we were part of the eu we used to get a lot of money uh from the european union to help towards mm. the arts wales in particular they had a lot of money to help with the with the welsh arts there um you know england has the arts council but it feels like the arts council is only there for certain aspects of the industry they, yeah. they don't you know they aren't going to suddenly give a load of money uh to a bunch of metalheads you know mm. it doesn't fit their remit what they're going to do is they're going to give some money to the opera they're yeah. going to give some money to, you know, ballet, or they're going to give some money to the yeah. theatres, things that, are, you know, a, a hierarchy of um, entertainment. Yeah, high art, or, if you will. Yeah. Yes, high art, yeah, you know, yeah. Where, you know, 30, 40 people standing in a room drinking beer and shouting lyrics back to each other and just fists in the air doesn't quite equate to them. But yeah. that happens more across the country than people going isn't, to... Isn't it funny that, you know... The, the first thing to suffer and things like this and the first thing to suffer when, when government does cutbacks and what have you is always the arts. And what's interesting is, you know, the, ladies and gentlemen, if you've been uh, sitting at home for three months doing nothing, what's the first thing you've done? You've watched movies, you've listened to music, um, yeah. you know, you've, you've completely put your arms around the arts. Those things are created by, by, by artists, people that have spent their lives learning to do that craft. You know, you're, you know, you've gone back and listened probably to every single record you've owned during this time, you know, yeah. at a pandemic. And it's like that was created by an artist. And one of the fallacies that I, I, I often shout about is that the, this isn't an on off switch. You just, okay, I'll come, we'll come back to the arts later on. It doesn't fucking work like that. It's, nah, it, when these cool. venues close, these venues close permanently and get replaced by fucking water stones or a fucking flats, weather yeah, spoons. Do you know what I mean? Whatever, it's, yeah. it's a fucking tragedy. These people that created that music or helped create the music like yourself, they go and find another work and become out of the loop and suddenly don't, aren't using that muscle anymore. They're doing, doing a muscle to do something else. And we lose that. So that's why you lose. There's, there's an energy, ladies and gentlemen, to a venue that 
is is unique to that venue. You talk about yeah. somewhere like the Brixton Academy or somewhere like that. These places have an energy to Tiv. You know, the live rooms, they have an energy and you can't just switch that energy back on. It's not like, okay, we're back out of the pandemic. Let's have it. It doesn't work like that. And so that's why, I mean, I really got involved with the, the, the safe, the, the, uh, our, our venues whole thing. And, you know, donating to that is, is see it if I can, ladies and gentlemen, is a way of paying for a ticket to a gig you will go to at some point because yeah. you won't have that opportunity to pay to go to that show again. And so it's still uncertain how, venues are going to survive because what's been interesting as well as the rent side of it there were sounds closed in liverpool and yeah. it was you know i believe sort of these things are par streets as well is is rent based as well because you pay all these yeah. people the wages but the, the landlords aren't really taking it into account with the rent of the venue you know I mean, some some places. Yeah, I mean, some some landlords have been really, really good. I mean, yeah. you know, we uh, there was there was a massive article the, about our landlords in the live rooms in Chester because yes. you know whilst we just sort of kicked off this whole lockdown COVID thing, we found mm -hmm. out that a planning application had gone in. We didn't know about it, yeah. you know, and obviously it got picked up. We found out from the Chester Chronicle. Chester Chronicle interviewed me. They put a piece out. Um, what they didn't realise at the time, and neither did we, is we spoke to our landlords. And all they were doing was covering their backs mm. because if this all had gone belly up and they had no tenants, it was like, what do we do? Yeah. You know, it's, uh, there's a lot of money that needs investing into that venue to, you know, uh, we've been spending a lot of money on it, you know, fixing the roof and doing all the aesthetics that we need to do to, to be able to open is obviously they own the place. Part of our lease is we have to maintain it. Yeah. Um, when we're booted out or, you know, not booted out, sorry, when we can't continue any longer, they're left with an empty shell. So all they were doing was essentially <clears throat> putting plans in place that if we're not there, they've got a safety net. Totally fine, you know. And they were open with us. That's exactly what we were doing. We're not yeah. kicking you out. You ain't going anywhere, you know. If you're staying there for the remainder of the contract, great. If you want to sign a new contract at the end of that, great, you mm. know, because of everything that was happening with Chester train station and the investment that was put in that, they were just thinking ahead of what to do. However, a lot of landlords aren't that, a lot of landlords aren't that mm. nice. Yeah. So a lot, a lot of venues out there are still having to pay rent even if it was reduced, but mm. you know, the, the, the problem is, is I think the government haven't given us any guidelines yet, but they are saying that we can probably open it as venues on the 4th of July in line with pubs, mm. but it has to be on a social distance measuring scheme, which, yeah. you know, means you've got to be two meters apart. Yeah. You know, there was a big massive um, report done last week, which is called the revs report, which is reopening every venue safely. Mm. And that meant that, you know, you, you'd put this, a two meter squared map over your venue to find out what your capacity would end up being. Yeah. And I think the live rooms, for example, had gone from 500 capacity to 29. Yeah. We can only, we can only get 29 people in the venue safely, COVID secure. You know, that's not financially viable for any venue. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And then another thing that came out was possibly um, you would have to be five or six meters away from the vocalist of a band or anyone who's singing because yeah. when they're shouting and screaming and, and singing louder, it, yeah. the, the spray or the spread goes further away. Yeah. So you'd have to be yeah. six meters away or five meters away. Some yeah. venues aren't even that wide. Yeah. You know, yeah. Five, <laughs> you know some of yeah. these smaller hundred cap spaces, exactly. five meters goes wall to wall. So it's like, well, yeah. that's it. I can't open, mm. you know? So it's, uh, it's, not just, loads of it's, it's not just the semantics of safety, you know, uh, yeah. that are, are omnipresent with any venue, you know, when you say, okay, now someone has to, we have to have this sanitizer. You have to have this distancing. Yeah. But you, there's the people that's that's a that's a very uh, politicians and governmental view of it. This is how safely we can open. They don't care, and that's the reality. They don't care about how that affects uh, live music. It's yeah. it's like you know 
the the adage I can, the best way I can explain to someone who who, who doesn't go to gigs a lot and, and is aware of that whole thing is that if you watch a, a comedy and you're on your own and you laugh, you're probably going to laugh a lot less than if you're with a whole group of people watching the comedy. So if you're watching a live show and um, and and you're really into it, and then you go to Ted to and go, oh, I love this song, and he's two meters away. Yeah. If, if it all the whole energy of a show and a live music fails, and it seems like um, I mean we've had an entire festival season completely go, you know, Just which is out, extraordinary. Yeah. And 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 then you, there's another sort of side as well is that if you want to like tour in in Europe and stuff, there's now differences in in kind of visas and things. Yeah. So, you know, there's a whole sort of a traveling thing. So some bands are going to be effectively locked out of out of playing outside of their country as well. You know, it used to be very easy way back when to go over on the ferry and, and go and play in France and Spain and what have you and put together tours. It used to be very easy. Then, you know, slowly but surely borders became more of, of a deal and, you know, you had carnets and things like that. Yeah. Now... We've got medical things like it, it, I mean, if you want to work in Russia and stuff, you have to like go for various tests, things like an AIDS test and stuff. That's it, gone even more so. So, it I think the ramifications of this um, pandemic will be felt forever. I don't know. I don't think there'll be. Let's get it back to normal. Don't think that's going to no. exist. I think we're we're gonna. It's going to take at least till sort of maybe the beginning of next year before we're going to see some some venues host a proper show. That's and the thing. I mean, you know, we're, we're sitting here waiting, and obviously, all all we're doing right now is is postponing and rescheduling. Whether it's yeah. you know, uh, obviously, the things that when they first started in March, you know, I had some shows rescheduling to August. You know, I think, ah, oh, we'll be done by then. You know, it's yeah. price, we're talking for, uh, three or four months away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. surely be over by then. Obviously, we're in June, and it doesn't look like it's going away anytime soon. So we're yeah. we're rescheduling the August shows, but we had things rescheduled from March through to September, all the way through to December. But obviously, they're all now moving to next year because you know the the big overriding factor to a lot of the, you know, a lot of these is even though we've booked these shows and we've agreed a fee, if people aren't buying the tickets and people don't feel safe going out, mm. then there's that bigger bigger problem that you know the artists need to break even, we need to break even, and if people aren't buying the tickets because they don't feel safe, yeah. then you know all those tours are going to move to next year because you have to safeguard everything. Yeah. You have to safeguard my finances, the artist's career, yeah. you know, and everything else. So unless there's some specific change in mm. the way the government's going to either help, you know, reopen properly. There was a survey done last week, I think it was, um, which the Music Avengers Trust have put out, and I think 18,000 to 20,000 people uh, yeah. had already filled it in within the space of a few hours. And 75% of those people said they would happily go back to a gig. So there's 25% of the people who aren't quite ready to go back mm. out there unless, you know, we're a few months down the line and we can see that the virus has disappeared. You know, if they're, if they're on about opening on the 4th of July, for example, and people are, you know, even, even a social distance gig or whatever, you can now see that places like Florida, you know, they, they, they've had to shut down again. Yeah, because they're, they're, almost know, a second wave, yeah. They're, they're on the peak of that. And obviously you look at Beijing mm. and they're shutting down again. So, you know, they keep on talking about this second peak. I mean, the second peak could come in October for us, which, yeah, you know, possible. it's going to wipe us out again for the rest of this year and into next year. That's what's about, I think, people have to understand it, is that certainly from a promotion and a venue uh, sort of point of view, is it's a constant stream. So when the reason venues and promoters want you to buy a ticket to a show before you walk through the door and you're not just a walk-up is because that yeah. all goes into the stream. 
So if they've got several shows, there's a stream of money coming in. If you don't pay for that or you're worried about, about going to show you, that means that that stream literally stops. And yeah. that's, the, that, that's the thing that keeps things moving. It keeps the boat moving along. And like you say, you know, even something as simple as saying, okay, the next show we're going to do, if we expect 25% less people than we're yeah. going to get, that's a significant factor. It's a, it well, okay, is. do we downsize the venue? Okay, do we change this? All those things become become parameters. And it's interesting that, um, you know, I, I, like you say, we're watching the world now. We're watching kind of, I've seen um, Doro did like a drive-in show and yep, stuff. Yeah, in Germany, yeah. And where, where, does, where do we stand then with, with we, we, right off the bat, it's not going to be as the same energy. We talked about that as a live show. Where do we stand with live streaming shows then? So we have, we have the venue, but the crowd is is electronic, is virtual. Uh, it's a problem. Um, I think that some of the countries are finding a lot easier. I think Scandinavia has been, you know, uh, a, a figurehead in the sense of they've been putting some really strong um, virtual shows together with high end production. You know, five K cameras, the full works, the lights, and everything. You know, even if, if even if they're in, um, you know production rooms rather than in venues they've been putting some real uh, energy into it in america and obviously in, in you know the drive-through shows are becoming quite a common thing you know mm. and uh, it, it's, it's it's starting to pop its head up more frequently mm. obviously america for example haven't really you know they're, they're they're threatening to reopen all their states very very quickly so yes. a lot of promoters there are trying to get out there and get those shows booked in you know there's some big shows planning to happen next month in america some like big big you know radio events you know because because the government or the state have said you can open they're doing it you know it's it's a case of but here we seem to be a bit more uh preemptive of should we just because we can should we open you know it's it's where does the liability lie if you put on the events if Mm. if you put if if the government says right we're going to relax all the rules now and we're going to reopen all your venues so that 500 people can go into the live rooms next week Mm. i mean if someone contracts the virus there where does the liability lie? Does the, yes. are the insurance companies then going to change their policies to allow you to put on a show? Mm. You know, do we have to get every person who comes to that venue to sign a disclaimer to say, I purchased a ticket. I know the risks. I'm coming anyway. I won't hold you responsible if yeah. I catch COVID, you know, yeah. as long as the venue have got all the, you know, the PPE, the hand washing, the screens to make sure that the, you know, the, the place is as safe as possible. They're cleaning regularly, you know, where does it stop? And, you know, obviously, without a complete cure, I don't think it's ever going to stop yeah. properly unless things completely eradicated, um, which, again, possibly could happen. We don't know where it came from, blah, 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 lots of conspiracy yeah. theories. But, you know, that could, that's, that's another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, I think what's, what's there's, there's a couple of ways. Look, there's the, the next couple of months, and then there's the next year or so. But yeah. I wonder as well as if how much it's damaging how we – um, how we kind of ingest music as well because it, it's taken off the table yep. now people are going oh right so i can i can live stream shows can i oh, okay i can i can just download that song okay i can just order that cd i can order that t-shirt this I, I wonder if we do get back to some relative normality is now people will go well you know what i was going to go and see that show but the live streaming it so i'm going to do that instead i wonder if it's kind of 
almost changing our listening habits as well or or, or our absorption of of music yeah no yes i think it probably is i think at the moment the live streaming is important to a degree Mm -hmm. to either allow the artists some income because obviously you've got to remember that you know yes we're all getting some help in this country but a lot of others aren't um and you know the artists out there there's quite a few that they do it for a living if they're not out there playing they ain't making any money Mm. so the live streaming part of it allows them if they're done correctly, uh, to have some form of revenue. So I get that, you know, in the interim, live streaming is important. Mm. It's going to bring some sort of revenue in for some parts of the industry. Uh, I think, well, you know, again, it's all speculation that maybe at some point they might relax the restrictions that we can get 100 people in the live rooms, for example. Mm. And, you know, we can work around that to a degree depending on the artist, but some of the artists would, you know, we're going to need to sell more than a hundred tickets to, to cover their fees. Yeah. So I guess the option would be is, do we create a, a, a VIP experience? So yeah. those hundred people that are coming to the, to the show that would normally do 500, for example, yeah. they're having to pay an extra premium to kind of cover <clears> it, but they're getting a more of an experience out of it. There might be a meet and greet. There might be some yeah. photos. There might be a, you know, other experiences with the artist that would allow that monetary value to go up a touch yeah. the other part is if we don't do that then we're going to have to find other ways of making that extra up so that could be a case of right now we can only do 100 people the rest of it's going to be live streamed mm. but then again you know who is going to pay for that live stream because obviously unless you put some like geo restrictions on it mm. everybody in the world can view that live stream yeah unless you put some blocks on it that only people in a certain ch postcode can mm. pick it up but one of the one of the obviously. things that I was discussing with a few people about potentially a way forward if it continues and becomes a problem to be in a live situation is that we combine the two and by that what I think we potentially could do is so you would do a live stream of a show and it'll be at your practice area but with all the accruements of like you know technology and multiple yeah. cameras and whatever and realistically in this day and age that's not too inexpensive a prospect it is it is viable and then yeah. someone would buy that that live stream for. 10 pounds, whatever it may be. But what that would do is it would then allow them to come to your next show for free. Yeah. Okay. So, so, so then, so say for example, you're doing a show and um, you have a band on, we do it virtually so they can watch that show and, and that's fine. They pay some money, but that money basically just goes directly to yourself. So we fund you. Uh, but then the next time that that show comes up, the, the, anybody that, that had that has a ticket or whatever, some digital access that they can go to that show. So we kind of, it might mean that the live stream might be a little bit more expensive because essentially you're paying for two shows, but it brings the people in, at least they're using the bar and at least they've been able to buy merch and, and have that experience as well. I feel that the answer is probably somewhere in there. It's obviously, it, it, it it's, to... there's, there's definitely some models that need, from that mm. aspect there, you know, you're getting two shows for the price of one to a degree yeah. is, you know, the first show is at the artist's cost to some degree. If they're using mm. a practice room, great. If they're using a venue, then they would have to obviously pay towards the cost yeah. of, you know, the engineer or the staff at the show is mm. then the second show becomes a slightly more expensive because if it's a proper gig with proper people in and yeah. all the staff have got to be there yeah. and then where do where does the venue get their costs covered from at yeah. that point? Yeah, it, need, it needs to be a breakdown free. of it slightly. Yeah, like, it needs yeah. to be some sort of, you know, uh, uh, there's plenty of cool ideas out there. Mm. It's just finding the right one that fits. I mean, yeah. every venue is different, I guess, to some yeah. degree. You know, every venue is going to have a different, it's not, it's not one size fits all. Each one is going to have a completely different yeah. outlook on what makes it tick for them. 
I think I'm coming from more of a, of a habit point of view as well. It's so much. I want to make people realise that you know we should be going. But I don't want to lose the fact that we think that what will happen when the when the gloves come off or we're allowed to do shows, the people are going to just run down from the hill into a venue. I, I worry that that maybe won't happen, and that's what I want. I, I, I want to try and preserve yeah. that the habit of going to gym. A lot of people I've spoken to and a lot of podcasts and a lot of, you know, people that I've spoken to when I've, when I've been doing my sort of live streaming interviews and, yeah. uh, and thing on Surprise Your Dead's page. And that is kind of like, yeah, everyone's been kind of like, yeah, the first gig that's going to be there. I don't care who's playing it. It could be yeah. the worst metalcore band playing their first ever yeah, show. Yeah. I'm going to be there. Reality, you're not. <laughs> you know, yeah. you're, you're still going to pick and choose what gigs you go to because yeah, yeah. it is to some degree about the quality of the artist that you want to see. You mm. know, the smaller bands, when they're probably going to be the first ones that can actually go back and do gigs because yeah. when they give us the you know the green light to actually you know open up in a more uh, financially viable way is we're going to be relying a lot more on the local scene mm. to bring people into the venue you know more local artists because they're you know it's not going to be, the touring artists aren't going to be available for two or three months down the line it takes a lot of planning and preparation to book a tour put everything together etc cetera, etc cetera. so it's going to be very much reliant upon the local artists in that particular scene uh to you know to kick start um the live music economy i think anyway i, I completely agree i think it under it underlines just how essential that that place is in the town city where people go to listen to music and the local people that help support that it just underlines that completely you know yeah. the, it, without that that's the lifeblood that, that helps that place go so if i'm a if i'm a music fan listening now how do i how do i support a venue how do I support someone like yourself? Kind of. How do we? How do we keep things? How do we keep the lights on? You know. Uh, I mean, first things first. We've talked about save our venues. Yes. You know, it's a big campaign that's covering all the 800 venues uh, across the country. Yes, about 50 percent of them are saved, give or take. But mm. um, you know, it's an ongoing fund that will enable all those artists, all all those venues to stay open. So the more money that goes into it, the more likely it is we'll save more and more of those venues. Mm. It's not going to last forever, but it's it's certainly a lifeline that's going to help a lot of places stay open for for, for foreseeable future. So obviously, you know, head to the website, um, you know, pick up a t-shirt, donate some money. Um, there, you know, there's 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 two reward schemes that are available to all venues. So you know, if you specifically are you know, particularly attached to one particular venue. So if you're from Chester and you really like the live rooms, we've only got two options there to help us. One is the T-shirt, which is the Save Our Venues T-shirt. And the other one is the Writing on the Wall project, which is basically souvenir uh, artwork yeah. of some of the shows that have happened yeah, in that venue. If you were a big fan, perhaps, of, I don't know, I'm trying to think of a venue that's been doing this. Um, I can't think of one. Uh, like Crawford Arms in sure. Milton Keynes, for yeah, example. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, they have various different um, uh, uh, reward schemes where you could have a super gig ticket. So if you contribute a thousand pounds to it, you'd get a gig for a you know a free entry. I think for a the year. Griffin and the Black Heart and stuff in, in Cameron. I think they're doing a similar thing. Yeah, where you can yeah, there's loads loads of different ticket. rewards. You know, you, you, yeah. This podcast is free. So if you're listening to this podcast now and you've got anything from and you will have got an enormous amount from, from Ian, you, I don't ask any money. But what I will ask on this particular show is you go to Music Venues Trust and the Save Our, Our Venues hashtag and do that. You know, if, you, if you've listened to this, it's about, I think we've gone over an hour now um, and enjoyed it, that you've gone to a show then. And so you need to, you need to pay uh, these people a little bit of a mind and go and buy a T-shirt and go and support these people because that's 
because it, it, we are going to be that situation where the you won't maybe go to some of these venues that you love and adore anymore. They won't last. So this this show's free, but today it isn't. It costs the price of a t-shirt or a, be, a piece of memorabilia like uh, like he was talking about from the live rooms, which is a fabulous idea. Um, we could we could talk a lot. Um, and we're, most, ladies and gentlemen, we've got to get Ian back on the show certainly after we get some normality back to talk about music and not about uh, a virus. We don't want to talk about that no more. Um, but ladies and gentlemen, Ian Shaw, what a fantastic, yeah, what a fantastic conversation. Thanks for coming on the Thank show. Thank you very much. Now it's been a pleasure. Been good chatting. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with, with Ian Shaw. Was, I got a lot from that. I mean, there's some stuff that, uh, you know, doesn't really get talked about an awful lot about uh, booking and how booking agents work and that, that type of thing. So I thought it was really nice for, for Ian to kind of share some things with that and, and, and the beginnings he had and where he's got to now. And it's uh, there's probably some good advice in and amongst there for people who want to become promoters and that type of thing. And I thought it was, although we talked about how difficult it was within these circumstances currently, uh, it was really interesting to talk about how there's still a positive spin on things. We're still trying to find out what we can do and how we can do things. And that's why uh, you you don't have to pay for this podcast. This, 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 This isn't a patron or anything like that. But I would strongly ask if you can go to these uh, links, and I'll put these links on on the show to uh, the live rooms and what have you, and 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 save our, our venues uh, hashtag and buy uh, t-shirts and support those venues close to you that are in risk of closing. Um, hopefully, we I, I, what I try and do with the podcast is put a human face to some of these things and uh, help help people understand there is a massive mechanism behind the live music scene and there's an enormous amount of people involved in it. And for that reason alone, you you know you should be um, wanting to support that because if it goes away, it will it will possibly stay away for forever. So I'll put some links on there so you can kind of buy t-shirts and support people in whatever way you 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 can. And thanks for listening to the show. As always, I will see you at the show.